0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, oh, good evening. And, and I'm happy that we're having the Metta, the Loving Kindness Day Long on Saturday with Nikki. Nikki is a great teacher and I think, uh, kind of now it's almost graduating from the Spirit Rock Teacher Training Program, and she's going to be one of the great teachers. And It's nice to have her come, and it's nice to do periodically have these day-longs of loving-kindness practice. It's such an important complement to the mindfulness practice. They go hand-in-hand. So it's a nice thing this Saturday. So this uh, evening I'd like to start a series of talks on the seven factors of awakening, seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, These are uh, states of mind that are are cultivated or 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 grow as mindfulness practice gets stronger. And in fact, in the teachings of the Buddha, one of the purposes of mindfulness practice is to let these states grow and develop they become quite strong. And these seven states are considered by sometimes a crown jewel of Buddhism. And they're states of being. And what's interesting about that in some ways is that they are not uh, tenants of belief. They are uh, 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 inner qualities that get developed and which they de- get developed I in, know in such a way they lead to awakening support awakening are aspects of awakening you know the word Buddhism is a Western invention and uh, seems like in the West we like isms and so we have Buddhism but the word Buddha is a is a uh, Title of this. Not, it's not a given name. It's just a title of the sky, called the Buddha, and that title is um, uh, means the, the original meaning means uh, to be awake. To wake up. It also means to have knowledge. I mean, it has a, kind of both meanings, and um, so we say the uh, factors. So, so the uh, maybe a better uh, than Buddhism. We would translate it completely to English as awakeism. isn't that kind of nice what's your what's your religion Awakism and um, these seven factors of awakening are sometimes considered to be the sap that runs through the the tree of Buddhism. If you think of Buddhism as a, all the different schools and traditions of Buddhism as the branches and the leaves of a big tree, uh, what they all have in common is the sap that has to run through the tree, that nourishes the tree, supports the tree. And these seven factors of awakening are the sap that runs through all the Buddhism, Buddhist practice, the sap that runs through the practice of all people, the practice, uh, practice of awakening. So these seven factors of awakening are uh, mindfulness is the first, Investigation is a second. Energy is a third. And then comes joy, tra- uh, uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And the last one, equanimity, is, uh, can, you know, some people, when they hear equanimity, it sounds boring uh, and a little bit maybe aloof and, you know, indifferent. But in fact, uh, the very mature, strong state of equanimity is one of the most sublime or beautiful states of mind and heart that I think anybody can experience. It has a kind of pristine peacefulness or refreshing quality to it that is, uh, you know, it's far from being indifferent, it's far from being, um, you know, cold or indifferent. Um, so I thought today I would do a little bit of an overview of these seven factors, and then over the next seven weeks, we'll take one at a time and go through them. So this thing, so this word uh, that's it, uh, used, uh, seven factors of awakening, the word uh, awakening here is the same as Buddha, it's a bod or bod, bodhi. And um, as I said, it has two different meanings. It has the meaning of to wake up and with the connotations of enlightenment. It also has the connotations of knowledge to have a real understanding of something. And both of those come into play as mindfulness gets stronger. The awake quality I love um, because it's nice, the idea of you wake up to your experience. Rather than needing to change and have a different experience, have a different world to live in, uh, the idea is to wake up to the world that you have. You wake up to the experience you have. You wake up to what's happening here. And, and that also includes what's going on inside of you. And the question is, you know, instead of saying be mindful of something, uh, would, it, uh, would it have a would, different effect on you? Would you kind of practice differently if the instructions were to wake up to something? So if you're uh, be awake to your breathing... To what you're that you're breathing, it's supposed to be mindful of your breath. To be mindful, the word mindfulness might imply kind of a narrowing down or tightening up or something, um, or to be awake, to be mindful of your suffering. Again, kind of a tightening and focusing and work, but to be awake to your suffering, um, this means kind of. I don't know what it means for you, but to me, it kind of means to open up to blossom. Um, apparently, one of the minor definitions of this word bud, bud means to expand and grow like a flower blossoms. So to open up to the experience and have an awareness which uh, uh, is receptive to what's happening, uh, but at the same time doesn't interfere with what's happening. To uh, characterize or describe these seven factors of awakening, I like to use the idea of waking up from a very refreshing nap. You had maybe afternoon nap. You're completely refreshed. You wake up in your room, and you're so refreshed and delighted and somehow contented that maybe it doesn't occur to you you have to do anything except lay there in bed and look at the light against the wall. You know it's very clear and light, and and um, and you're quite and you know you feel very awake. The wakefulness is a clarity, and um, and so in that you know, clarity comes, these seven factors of awakening. Maybe not at the, at the level of being awake, but, uh, you know, enlightened, but still. Uh, you know, you're there and you're kind of awake and you kind of see and you're aware. You're present and notice things in the room. You notice how you know, the light falls on the wall or how the light, the sunlight travels through the dust. You didn't realize there was so much dust in your house. And you see, you see all the dust. And it's kind of like this magic display and you really see it clearly. Wow. Or you're... There's a, a, bouquet, a little bouquet of flower on a nightstand, and you see the flower, just like you're really kind of registered, you're there. Just you and the flower, just you and the dust, and you really you know it's there. You're mindful of it, you know it's there. But there's not any effort to do it. It's kinda of like the, and then um and then you get curious, you look more carefully. You kinda of study the dust and see how it's swirling and wonder if all the dust is swirling in the same way and and so there's kind of an investigation, you're kind of looking more carefully. And then there's some energy there. You didn't have energy, any energy before you had, took a nap. And you're not over-energized. It's not like you're just like rev to get up and whatever. Uh, but there's a, there's a kind of a, a peaceful or clear or refreshing energy, just energy of just being awake or being present, um, that's kind of clean or almost transparent or almost kind of invisible because it's kind of like not over and not under, just, just an energy that is, and it feels so good. And then there's a delight, there's a delight just being there cozy, delight just being, delight kind of in being able to see and be conscious and aware and what a special thing to be conscious. And delight in the dust and the flowers, the light, just kind of whatever's going on, just a delight, the joy. And then you realize that you're tranquil, you're kind of peaceful, you know, you're not just not agitated by anything, worried about anything, just kind of a peacefulness that's there. And I don't know about concentration, but maybe, uh, you know, the dust gets really interesting. (laughs) You know, you you kind of really kind of, that's, you know, you just get absorbed in the dust. You're absorbed in the flower, absorbed in the play of light. Just kind of like that's all there is for a while. And then finally, there's a kind of equanimity. Equanimity means uh, that, uh, kind of like tranquility, but it's when the mind is not agitated, but also the mind has no movement for or against anything. In states of tranquility, they might be very relaxed for or against things. But a mind that has equanimity is not for or against anything. It's just very peaceful, very unreactive to what is. So perhaps you've had experience of something like that. Some time ordinary wakefulness where, you know, it's it's not really, you wouldn't have gone back and looked or thought about in those categories. But if you look back, maybe you say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That was there to some degree. So these qualities uh, are something that get developed as we do the practice, and uh, they they partly they follow in the wake of mindfulness, and it's good to learn to recognize them are there and to appreciate them, because the appreciation of wholesome states of mind strengthens them and helps them to grow. The appreciation of unwholesome states of mind, or the rec- or or say it differently, the appreciation the preoccupation with unskillful unwholesome states of mind has a wonderful way of kind of strengthening those many times and so what where we you know where, where the mind goes, what the mind pays attention to has a lot a big effect on the development the shape the mind takes just like in I think modern science sometimes says now the mind is more plastic than they used to think the, the Buddha talked about the mind being malleable and so uh, what you pay attention to affects the shape, the shape of the mind, the qualities of the mind, the conditioning of the mind. Uh, someone this weekend said um, that um, uh, the mind is like tofu. Uh, you put tofu and you have it rest on something, it takes the shape of what it's resting on. So, so rest your mind, be careful where you rest your mind, take the shape. So the idea to recognize these uh, seven factors of awakening and rest there or appreciate them has a good conditioning effect on the mind. And they become powers and strengths that we carry with us. And those strengths uh, make us much more resilient and much more balanced in the challenges of our life. And this is one of the, one of the aspects of Buddhism emphasizes is that uh, if you only try to live a balanced, have a balanced mind, a free mind, an unreactive mind, a wise mind. Uh, only when you have major challenges in your life, good luck. So, but you want to prepare for that, and so you want to develop your mind. You want to develop. You know, the mind is malleable; it can be shaped. So, you want, you want to build up certain strengths, so that when the, when um, the challenges come, which will inevitably come, you're prepared, and you can stay calm, balanced, focused, wise in the situation. So, uh, the seven factors of awakening, there's seven, and uh, they're divided into two major categories. There are the uh, energizing factors, and there's the calming factors. And three of them are energizing, and three of them are calming. And the energizing factors are investigation, energy, and uh, joy. Joy has an energetic quality to it. And uh, the calming factors are the last three, which are uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, and uh, and mindfulness uh, is the balance between them. If you think of a, a seesaw, and uh, mindfulness would be the pivot in which a seesaw is balancing, and so mindfulness is kind of like the controller or watches and the, or the balancer of it all. And so, if, if the seesaw tips too far in one direction, it's the role of mindfulness to help bring it up to balance again. Many years ago, when I was in college, I had a roommate who I admired for how relaxed and laid back he was. Uh, I would come home from college, and he'd already be home, and he'd be on, he be on—he was on the couch, and he was always just kind of completely laid out, spread out on the couch, like he was, like you know, knew how to relax. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool, I thought. He's really relaxed. And, um, and I thought, you know, that would know, be nice if I could be relaxed like that. I just kind of admired him. But, uh, you know, it never occurred to me to do that. It just somehow just never, it just never occurred to me. I, I just did my life as I did it. and I never, But I admired him for it. And um, so then I went to the monastery, Tassahara Monastery. And I got a lesson there that has stayed with me ever since. Uh, I, was, I arrived in January, it was winter and cold, and, um, and there's you know no real heating in the little teeny cabins that we all lived in with no insulation. And uh, the meditation hall had um, rice paper windows. So, um, and there was no heating in the meditation hall. And it was in the middle of Las Padres National Wilderness, and wintertime was cold, and um, it was hard to be there in the cold because um, uh, I get chillblains. So if you know what chillblains are, if you, have, if you if you you know, you know, right, <laughs> from England, <laughs> and um, it means if you have if you have really thin capillaries and veins or something, and um, and if you go from cold to hot really quickly, the blood surges into those little teeny thin capillaries and they burst. And uh, it, you end up getting kind of swollen and really itchy fingers. So I would go sit there in this cold zendo. And then it would heat up quite a bit when the sun came out. We went down this narrow valley. And uh, when the sun hit my hands, my, hand, all the, you know, my hands would get all red and hard. And so, so, uh, so eventually what I discovered was I, I couldn't use the hot springs anymore. Uh, because the hot springs would be really hot. And then I would get, you know, going from cold to hot just didn't work for me. So I stopped using the, people go to Tosar for the hot springs. I stopped using the hot springs. I'm going off on a tangent. Um, I shouldn't talk to this anyway. I, and, uh, and I would all winter long, I'd go, uh, uh, do, do my baths in the river, because I had to go someplace cold, because I couldn't do, deal with the heat anymore. But I didn't know, didn't know that when I first got there. And so I would go, in the wintertime was cold, and I'd go and enjoy the hot springs. And, you know, every day was actually in the schedule you were supposed to. You know, it was a bath hour. Everyone had a bath hour at 5 o'clock or 4.30 or something. And so we'd go there to, and take our baths in this beautiful hot springs, shower and go to the bath, soak. And when I first got there, it was so nice. And I would just luxuriate and just enjoy it. Oh, this is heaven. This is so nice and relaxing. It's so good. And I'd just be there. And then... Um, I did it the next day and the next day. And after a while, after some days, while I was there, I don't know how long it was, but some weeks, I noticed that I was going in shorter and shorter in the bath. Until finally one day I noticed that I would shower, shower up, soap soap up and shower and get all clean in the showers. And then I'd go into the hot tub. And basically, when I got, as soon as I got warm, I'd get out and go. I didn't stay there and relax and luxuriate. I just, it was very matter-of-fact. And I kind of started worrying about them. I was like, Gil, you know, maybe you know, you're know, you losing your ability to relax. You know, you're becoming a monk in a monastery and, you know, you can't just kind of just hang out and just relax. And um, so I looked at that for a while, and after a while I decided, what I noticed was I didn't need to relax. The whole lifestyle, all the meditation we did, I no longer needed to relax because I was, already, I was relaxed. <laughs> And then I remembered my college roommate, and I said, oh, I think he needed it. It was, the pendulum swung, he, he was so stressed out, he was so tense, that he, his way of dealing with that was that he had to come swing to the other side and really kind of collapse on the couch and really relax. It's not a balanced life. But if there's a balanced life, you don't need to relax. So, you know, through the, in the monastery, I discovered this balanced life. And to some degree, that lesson has stayed with me ever since in my practice and my life. And it's taught me something very important about being balanced, not being stressed, uh, not getting caught up, because if I am, then I have to compensate for that later. I have to kind of, you know, unwind, I have to take a nap, I have to go to the hot tubs, (laughs) whatever, and uh, drink alcohol, you know, all kinds of things that people do in order to unwind. And uh, it's much more efficient just not, not to get st- tense and stressed to begin with. <laughs> so, um, so these seven factors of awakening are, are balancing factors. And to help us with this, finding this balance, so we're not over-energized and we're not drained and too calm or too kind of sleepy or relaxed. And so, um, and so to have them just balanced and perfect... The, um, uh, so the, the mindfulness I said is a pivot, and mindfulness is the controlling factor of them, they say. Because mindfulness uh, has a, will notice whether you're too tense or too trying too much, too much energy, or if you're too relaxed or too uh, complacent or too, you know, you know kind of calm. And, and so as you notice that, the very noticing of it tends to bring things into balance. And this is one of the great things about mindfulness. Mindfulness itself is simply the clear recognition of what is. But there's something in the, about the mind, the way the mind or this inner system works, that the clear recognition of something um, has a big effect on the inner ec- ecology of the mind. And that's particularly true, I uh, see that with uh, investigation. Also the second factor is an energizing factor, brings energy to investigate and to look and be curious. But it's fascinating to and be curious and to look at something, look at what's going on, um, uh, because it changes the whole inner ecology. It's kind of like if you and add a new species to ecosystem, the ecosystem shifts and changes as a result. So if you're feeling really lousy, really bummed out, really kind of struggling in some way, um, try bringing investigation into that challenging situation. Get curious, what's going on here? you know, what's going on with me, what's going on with my feelings, what's my thoughts, what's the energy like? Start looking. And if you look and investigate strongly enough, then you're beginning to claim your autonomy, the autonomy of your mind, the autonomy of your awareness, rather than being sucked in and being caught and believing and identifying with a problem. Oh, poor me, it's so hard, what am I going to do? Let's look. Here I am, self-pity. What is self-pity like? Oh no, I can't do this. It's impossible to be mindful when I'm having this kind of problem. Oh, when I have this kind of problem, I keep thinking it's all impossible and I can't be mindful. Wow, this is what it feels like to feel like I'm not mindful. Maybe I should, I'm I'm, I'm gonna look at this more carefully. And so, you know, it kind of shifts you, pulls you out. Make, Make sense what I'm saying? Um, but I can't be mindful. I mean, I can't be mindful. I can't investigate. It's so hard. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I deserve to be suffering. I deserve, you know, this is like, I'm supposed to be, be miserable, you know, and I can't do anything about it until I get recognized by other people for being miserable. <laughs> because other people have to kind of commiserate and, you know, only, you know, I can't, you know, pull myself up by my own bootstraps and be, you know, investigate. Anyway, but, so then you look at that, Right. So anyway, I don't know if this conveys it too much or enough, or I don't know, but the idea of investigating. So mindfulness, investigation, changes the whole system of the mind. Helping the mind to become autonomous. Or to say it differently, uh, helping us to not be stuck in the mud. There's a story that Buddha gave a parable. If two people are stuck in the mud, maybe you think of quicksand rather than mud, and um, they're both in the same kind of mud, quicksand, and if one of them tries to pull the other one out, what happens is the one who's doing the pulling gets pulled down further. Well, then the one who's now higher in the quicksand tries pulling the other one out. And that goes down. It doesn't work. And so the Buddha said, one person has to get up on the dry land. In dry land, you can pull the other person out. So the idea of pulling your... So the idea is you have to do it yourself. Uh, you don't wait for someone else to do it for you. So to pull the the beautiful mind you have out of the mud and to let it blossom. And again, this this image of mud and coming out of it and blossoming, Buddhism has the idea of the lotus, the lotus flower that grows out of the mud and blossoms. So your mind can grow out of the difficulties of your life and blossom in some way. And only you can do that. And so this idea of being awake is part of this quality. What does it take? And uh, are you waiting? Are you waiting uh, until the conditions are just right? Are you waiting until whatever, you can meditate enough? Are you waiting until you can go on retreat? Are you waiting until, you know, I don't know what, you get in a raise? You know, what are you waiting for? Um, Because to pull yourself up out of the preoccupation, the absorption, the lostness, the entanglement with our concerns and our worries and our fears and our desires and our ambitions can be done at any time. And so mindfulness, to clearly see what's going on and to investigate it are some of those qualities. And then we gotta keep doing it. And that keep doing it is the energies. Some people translate the word here as persistence. Just keep practicing, keep doing it. Um, because you can't just expect instant results. You have to kind of practice and develop and grow in this capacity. And then when uh, we bring energy, to mindfulness energy, an energetic way of being mindful or investigating a nice balanced energy. Um, It actually uh, brings joy, the joy of engagement, the joy of absorption. And this becomes quite strong for people, especially when they meditate, when uh, they get very absorbed and factors of rapture begin to grow and suffuse the body. And then uh, then, uh, the idea of being happily engaged in what you're doing. Uh, it has a tranquilizing, a calming effect on us. We're just content, calm, we're engaged nicely. And with uh, both the combination of all these things, uh, and especially the tranquility, the calm, and the, and the joy, comes an increased ability to get concentrated. The idea of really being absorbed, really focused here and now, um, is hard to do if you're miserable. Unless you're really focused on your misery. That people are very good at uh, but then to really kind of uh, to have all these things working together, there's a way in which um, uh, this, the, the, almost the physiology of our system, our f- human physiology, is built in such a way that if we have wholesome states of mind, a skillful wholesome states of mind, you focused on something wholesome or beneficial, um, and we get absorbed in that, that uh, um, joy wells up. As the joy wells up, it supports further tranquility and further absorption, further concentration. It's a feedback loop that goes on. And then that feedback loop keeps, keeps building on itself. Uh, greater tranquility, greater joy, greater concentration brings more tranquility, joy, happiness, more concentration. At some point the, the, the joy becomes more tranquil, it becomes more like a peaceful happiness. At some point the tranquility deepens and it becomes a sub- sublime kind of equanimity that arises. And with that equanimity, uh, part of the purpose of all this is not just to have states of mind, uh, you know, have good cool states of mind. The purpose is to, um, to be able to see very clearly, to be able to have, have the, the eye and the mind, the mind's eye, see our, what's going on in our life, in our experience, without any clouds in front of the eyes, unclouded vision clear, focused, penetrating insight into what's happening for us. And so this comes to the knowledge side of this, uh, this word uh, Buddha, or, or enlightenment, or awakening, the Buddha. So um, it's both, both a quality state of being awake, which is a state of freedom, but also a state of knowledge and understanding. And what we come to the understanding uh, with awakening is a very clear understanding of what's called the Four Noble Truths, or how this, how, how um, basically in the simple form of it, is how uh, grasping or clinging or thirst or compulsion um, uh, causes suffering. To understand what we do in our mind, the choices we make in our mind that are causing us to suffer. maybe not all sufferings included, but we certainly see our contribution to it, what we do. And that ability to start seeing the cause and effect relationship between the choices we make deep in our mind and the consequence in our suffering is considered to be one of the great insights that Buddhist practice leads us to. And you might feel like it's not very great because it's just suffering and you know understanding it, but to have that insight in a deep, deep way helps to uproot our entanglement with some of the deepest seated fears and attachment that human beings have. That keep us from really being kind of limit us in our life, keep us from being free, which being free means not limited, not bound up uh, in things and so one of the things that people get bound up in you know sometimes enslaved to is a very powerful addiction to uh, self S- uh, self self attachment attachment to their self image to their self identity to the, who they are, how they 're seen by other people. Um, uh, through their own opinions and ideas. You know, the things they take are really central to who they are, I am this way. And uh, it's really hard to get to the root of that and see how it's an attachment and kind of a clinging and see, sometimes it's hard to see how that actually limits us. And so um, the the whole, one of the primary purposes of developing the mindfulness, developing the seven factors of awakening is to lead us to a place where we see uh, these deep choices that we make. So we can take responsibility for our lives in a deep way and understand you know, how it all works. And so these two things go together. So the word b- bodhi or Buddha has a meaning both to be awake and to have deep penetrating understanding. And it's important to have these two together. Some people really just want to have... Uh, uh, enlightenment and nothing else. <laughs> they just want to have a cool state, a wonderful state. You know, just like, want to arrive. You know, the big bang, the area of Buddha, boom! You know, and, and you, you, you did it, you know. Instant enlightenment, and now you can just kind of go around. And not, you know, you can get on to more important things in life because, you, you know, you did your enlightenment thing. And, um, but uh, but in Buddhism... That state, the freedom that the mind uh, that uh, develops over time, is supposed to come together with us uh, deeper and deeper, a clearer, clearer understanding of how this life works, how the mind works, especially how, you know ourselves how it works. So we understand, we have a clear understanding of the choices, of the cause and effect relationships. So we can be really be wise. And that wisdom is portable. That wisdom is something we can carry with us and apply in our life and understand in different ways. Uh, the state of being awake uh, might be temporary. The state itself might not stay with a person. But the insight and understanding that you get uh, becomes an encouragement, becomes an, uh, be- gives enthusiasm to practice, shows us where the path is when our life is difficult, shows us the work we have to do. So mindfulness leads in this seven factors of awakening. um, One way of understanding it is that they are progressive. Mindfulness has become stronger, leads to investigation. Investigation leads to greater engagement with our life and what we're doing. Uh, Engagement or energy leads to joy. Joy leads to tranquility. Tranquility leads to concentration and concentration leads to equanimity. And when those seven factors get balanced, then um, uh, it said that the path of mindfulness, of vipassana, is fully mature. And fully mature doesn't mean you've come to the end of the path, it means then you've done what you have to do for the path. And because it's, you can't, the, uh, the, you, you can't take the path of uh, Buddhism all the way to the end through self-effort just by yourself. Because memory is supposed to be free of self, self-involvement, and self. So, so at some point you have to allow this whole system, the ecosystem, to work on its own, and to step back from needing anything to happen, or a step back from needing anything to be attained, a step back from measuring anything from point of view of yourself. Just let it all just be, and then something beautiful can happen in that state, greater awakening greater wisdom and understanding so these are the seven factors of awakening and so i thought that now in the next monday evenings that we'd go through one at a time so next monday would be mindfulness and then so forth and kind of go in each one a little more depth so we have about 10 minutes and do you have any questions or comments about that that you'd like to make or testimonials about the seven factors of awakening of your own You could use the mic, please. <clears throat> uh, my my question is this: is uh, uh, a lot of times, you know, when you're when you're growing up, you, you're taught that you know grasping is is a good thing, in terms of you're striving, you're striving to be better. You have to make yourself better, and 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 and, and I'm I'm wondering if you know how that relates with letting go of grasping. Does that mean you, you've given up on making yourself better? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, if you're grasping, gra- it depends on what we mean by these words, right? But uh, grasping has tension in it, in my, my, my vocabulary. And if you, if you grasp and are tense in doing it, um, then, you ha- then you're going to end up spending some time on the couch, you know, that you, then, then you're building up stress and tension. And it's, it's, uh, it has its toll over time. And it has its toll not only on in our own stress, but it also sometimes has a toll on poor decisions. You know, and often what drives grasping is, you know, it's interesting to look at that. Um, but the idea of uh, improving ourselves, improving the world, is uh, integral to the whole Buddhist enterprise. And having the wish for that, and being motivated, having strong motivation for that, is a very important part of Buddhism. But having strong motivation and grasping are two different things. Make sense? Uh, something i got to think about. <laughs> okay. So there's probably some good example of something that um, that uh, you're, simply, you're simply you can't be successful doing it if you grasp. And so you have to kind of you stop grasping. Then, then maybe you can manage to do it. You have to kind of um, so, for example, um, um, if you want to pick up water, you know, you can't grasp the water. You know, you have to keep your hand open and cup it and come from underneath, and then you get a little bit of water in your hand, right? But as soon as you grasp it, you kind of lose all the water you carefully held. Or um, if you grasp too tight to the bicycle, when you're riding the bicycle, you know, you have to kind of a little bit be relaxed. You can't tense up all your muscles to hold on to it. So there's lots of things where grasping interferes with the very thing we're trying to do, and uh, tension interferes. So the art of this is how to be strongly motivated, but without having any uh, any uh, stress building up, or any limitation or contraction in the doing of it. Does that make a little bit of sense? I it's going the right direction. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll settle for that. (laughs) I'll try more another time, but I won't grasp it. <laughs> right, right behind you there. Uh, uh, is, is equanimity, is that like being in neutral gear? Just, it feels very neutral. Is that what it's like? No, neutral means that nothing's engaged. It's like you oh. know everything's just kind of rolling along and the momentum you already have. Uh, equanimity, you're fully engaged. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's um, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, it's hard for me to know how to describe it. it uh, but uh, imagine a f- uh, flame, a candle flame. There's no wind, no breeze, and the candle flame is burning really bright, mm-hmm. but it's completely still. You know, and it's a lot of energy in there. It's a lot mm-hmm. of that vitality, mm-hmm. but it has a stillness to it. Mm-hmm. So the mind, there's a vitality, a liveness a vitality that's there in the mind of equanimity, and it's not coasting, it's not in neutral in any kind of means, mm-hmm. it's like in the highest gear possible, but it's not mm-hmm. moving, it's completely still, um, at the same time. Thank you. Yes, please. Is... Hi. I tried to picture these uh, seven factors. Uh, is it uh, because you started to describe that and uh, I was following a path where I see step on a staircase yes. or is it cycle or is it uh, I don't know uh, a range of state and we move from one state to another no. state, no. and we move to another state to I another state. I think it's all the also. above. I think because, because there, 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 there are states of mind that arise, that exist, those states can exist in relationship to each other in all kinds of ways. And so sometimes they uh, grow sequentially, sometimes they grow. They, they happen, with different ones are strong at different times, and, you know, they're not in sequence. Uh, sometimes they uh, ex- all exist together sometimes they uh, exist together you can really feel how they work together in, in balance with each other you can feel that one's a little bit out of balance or under balance and you can kind of line them all up um, and certainly they can be a spiral they can get a little bit strong and then after, as you practice more they kind of get stronger and mindfulness leads to one round of them getting stronger and then come back to mindfulness and you do another round, get stronger so all, all of the above probably that makes sense So, all the way on the out. Can you just pass that mic to the outer hall? What you said about the mud and the lotus reminded me of how uh, yoga teacher Judith Lasseter signs off her emails. May you live like the lotus at home in the muddy waters. Great. Okay, well, thank you for this evening and coming and sitting here and listening. And uh, I hope that um, you, know, you know if, if I'm going to suggest something, you take with you for the week to reflect on in your life. Uh, you might want to reflect on this: uh, what I said about the pe- the, the pendulum between uh, stress and the need to relax, and see if you can kind of adjust that little bit and see if. If you if you can live in such a way, maybe you don't get so stressed, and then maybe you don't have to get so spend a lot of time recovering. And if you don't have to spend time recovering, um, so if if you if you know if you if it's stressful to do self improvement, then you have to recover. <laughs> but if but if it's not stressful to do self improvement, then you could do more. You don't have to recover, and so maybe you get more efficient. Anyway, look, look at how that works in your life. It might be interesting to study it for you, yourself. Thank you all.